So tonight I'm going to talk about the tarot. I'm going to talk about the major arcana as this path of spiritual healing. So first of all, just a brief introduction to the tarot for folks who may not be too familiar with it. The tarot has 78 cards. And these 78 cards are divided into two groups. There are 56 cards that are analogous to playing cards. They have four suits of 14 cards each, so ace through 10 plus court cards. The four suits are cups, wands, swords, and pentacles. And these roughly correspond to the, ele- the primary elements, water, fire, air, and earth. And they also correspond roughly to the four psychological functions identified by Carl Jung, feeling, intuition, thinking, and sensation. So there, there are rich associations with, with these cards. Now that group, the, the, seven, the 56 in four suits, that's called the minor arcana. Now there's another group, 22 cards, and these are not in any suits or any, I mean, they're numbered 0 through 21, but they, they don't follow the ordinary numbering like ace, two, three. And this is a series of archetypal images, and this is called the major arcana. And that's what we'll be talking about tonight. We'll be seeing each one of the 22 cards. We'll be looking at a deck, a very traditional deck, known as the Rider Weight deck. Now, Ryder was just the publishing company. Nothing special about that. Arthur Waite was actually the, the brains behind it. He was the, the occultist. He was, he was the person familiar with the, the ancient wisdom traditions and tried to put a lot of that wisdom onto the card. And he worked closely with Pamela Smith. Pamela Smith was the graphic artist who actually designed the images under Waite's instructions. And so as much as possible, they were trying to make for each card, they're trying to make the wisdom of that card available in the picture. And so these are really stunning images. And this is a very popular tarot deck. Now, before I go on, I'll just say that the tarot deck, of course, it has many uses. Uh, one, of, one of the uses is divination. And divination... Is, sometimes its divination is defined as fortune telling, which I think is is a kind of a shallow definition of divination. Um, divination is about, you might say, opening to the the deeper possibilities of the moment, seeing seeing what forces are stirring in the psyche, in the moment. And of course, the more deeply we understand the moment, the more we can anticipate what might happen in the future. Um, I used the term ago that the, the cards of the major arcana are archetypal images. An archetype is a symbol or an image that represents or taps into some deeper human potential. This is, this is very much a Jungian idea. And so it might be a potential or way of being in the world or a way, a kind of energy to occupy, something that we might not have a, a clear understanding of in our strategic mind, but the symbol gives us some access to it. So I'll be talking a little more about that as I talk about these images. So, the major arcana. The first card is the Fool. And and again, there's 22 cards, but they're numbered from 0 to 21. So, this is card number 0. And here's the Fool, in complete innocence, wide open, about to walk off the edge of a cliff. Um, there's, There's a lot I like about this image. I will say, first of all, the name, the Fool... In, in modern parlance, 
we use fool and dolt and idiot more or less interchangeably. You know, we, we, we associate fool with someone with, with poor cognitive capacities. Um, and that's not really the traditional understanding of the fool. In the medieval court, the fool, or the jester, was the one person in the king's court who could speak the truth that the king didn't want to hear. You know, from, from ancient times, it's always been the case that if you have a king or an emperor or a dictator, you know, the, the people, most of the people devoted to him in his inner circle, they don't dare make that person mad. They, they only tell them what they want to hear, you know. But there's kind of a cultural wisdom that a king will get in trouble if all he's hearing is what he wants to hear. Sometimes the most important information for him to hear, the most important information for the success of the kingdom, is the information he doesn't want to hear. And so that was the job of the fool. And so along those lines, the fool really represents what is, what is the truth about our lives that I haven't been willing to hear yet? What is, what is that truth or that, that, that deeper way of facing myself that I haven't yet quite faced yet? Part of the fool is about opening up to that. Um, and there's, there's a tremendous innocence to the fool also. Um, innocence in this kind of wide open, you know, trusting, trusting life, just walking forward into the process. So that's the fool energy. Oh, and the final thing I'll say about the fool is, in some sense, the fool is the person who takes the journey through the major arcana. He, he takes the hero journey. But, but I always love this image because whenever in our own lives, whenever we undertake a hero journey, when we, whenever we undertake a new adventure or a new, you know, face a new challenge, that sort of thing, often we don't feel like a hero. Often we feel like a fool, you know? And there, there's something very, there's something very deep about you know, um, beginner's mind, and kind of starting out, starting out this new, you know, this new stage of growth, not really knowing what we're doing, you know. So the first person that the fool encounters is the magician, and. This is, this is very much associated with the archetype that Jung called the wise old man. Often in mythology, when the hero sets out, he immediately meets a wise old man who guides him on the path. For King Arthur, this was Merlin. For Luke Skywalker, this was Ben Kenobi. And so the magician is that quality. Um, I'll point out that on the table in front of the magician... We have the four, four suits all together. We have a cup, a sword, a pentacle, and a wand. This is the only card of all 78 cards in the tarot. This is the only one in which all four of those items appear on one card. And so the magician is a kind of master of the tarot and is one of the many symbols of wholeness. So the, the magician in many ways is the wisdom that comes from our wholeness. Um, he points up and, and down, you know, linking above and below. And it's very important to realize this is not a, a kind of sterile head-centered wisdom. This is, this is very much a verdant wisdom. You, we see the flowers bursting into bloom all around him. This, this is a wisdom, a life-giving wisdom, a wisdom that affirms our deepest capacity for life. Um, and so this represents a, a place in us that really understands in a very deep way um, our path toward wholeness. Um, and how to say it? It's such a deep path. It's such a deep wisdom that often it's, it's hard for us to hold it. And it's easier for us to project, project it onto a coach, a guru, a guide, project it externally and and view it that way rather than really take responsibility for it because it's a very weighty thing to take responsibility for this. So this is the magician.
After the magician, there are four, what I call, four parental cards. Um, and I think there's something very real about the fact that when, every time we go through the cycle of growth, the cycle of healing, we're renegotiating our parental formations, our reactions to our parents. You know, of course, the, the stereotypical beginning of psychoanalysis is Freud saying, tell me about your mother, you know, this kind of thing. So a lot of our rediscovery has to go with renegotiating how we view our parents. So the first parental image is really a terrifying image, the high priestess. So the high priestess is this mysterious feminine on the, the tapestry behind her are pomegranates, which are associated with Persephone, who of course is the queen of the underworld. She has a crescent moon at her feet and really her gown in some ways is turning into water. She has a scroll kind of tucked into her shawl, Torah, this, this hidden wisdom, this wisdom that's not very accessible. The B and the J, the pillars, those stand for Boas and Yaquin. These were the, the two pillars on the Temple of Solomon. And they were often understood as having kind of a yin-yang relationship with each other. And so she's sitting, as it were, at the entrance of a temple. But behind the pillars in the tapestry, we don't see a temple. We see a dark lake, you know. So her wisdom is wisdom very much of the unconscious. It's wisdom of the tidal elements in us, the elements in us that are in constant flow, you know. Ego is often very fixed and is often kind of uncomfortable with the fact that there are parts of us in constant flow, you know. So there's something very threatening about, um, threatening to the, to the conventional comfort to which ego gets accustomed. The high priestess is very threatening to that. Um, as a female figure, I would say that she represents a female that is distant and cold, or unfamiliar and cold. Now, the, in some ways, the, the opposite kind of feminine figure from the High Priestess is the Empress. The Empress represents tremendous love, tremendous acceptance. This is the mother's love. This is the grandmother's love. This is the, the love that allows us to love ourselves, you know? And it's just this profound archetypal motherly kind of acceptance. Um, how can I say, you know, insofar as our own parents may not have been enlightened Buddhas, you know, perhaps we were not loved, you know, exactly as we should have been. It is always possible to contact the archetypal feminine, the archetypal mother, that is an energy in the depths of all our psyches. And really to draw the love from that, that we never got before, can be a very powerful thing, a very powerful step of re-reparenting ourselves. So this is an image, I would say, the feminine, it is, I describe this as warm and familiar. Or, or warm and near. And tremendous association of this card with the heart chakra. So those are the two mother figures. The two father figures, the first is the emperor. And we see on a granite throne, very solid. And of course he has the suit of armor underneath his robes, representing this tremendous power this tremendous power, tremendous authority. This is representing the masculine in its capacity for, for groundedness, for honor, for dignity, self-respect, the kind of respect that comes from somebody who carries tremendous self-respect, certainly tremendous boundaries. Um, all of that is associated with this card. Um, and I would describe this card, this is the masculine as cold yet familiar or cold yet near and the other father figure 
is the Hierophant, a much more airy figure, um, representing, so this is a, a card representing a very high level of spiritual wisdom, spiritual wisdom in terms of clarity, insight, detachment, um, this is very much associated with the crown chakra and with the kind of wisdom that we can access through the crown chakra. Um, I would describe this figure as warm but distant or warm but unfamiliar. And so I think there's a very interesting gender dynamic that plays out here. The archetypal feminine presents itself along the axis either cold and unfamiliar or warm and familiar, the archetypal masculine presents itself as either cold and familiar or warm and unfamiliar. So there's, there's something profound there. So those are the four parent cards and the four, you might say, different masks or archetypal masculinity and archetypal femininity. And after this, we get the lovers, of course the union of masculine and feminine. And this card, you, you could say in some ways, it represents the energy of falling in love. It represents the honeymoon period. It represents the excitement that begins all new undertakings. You know, um, I remember that when I was in my early 20s and I first started to meditate, that first week, I was so excited. Like, boy, oh boy, this is great. I'm meditating. I'm going to turn into Gandhi. This is fantastic, you know. There was definitely a kind of honeymoon period at the beginning when I was really excited about things. Um, and of course, this doesn't last. This doesn't last in a romantic relationship. This, is, this doesn't last in anything. Um, but it's a useful phase. It, it provides, as it were, the activation energy to get going, the activation energy to move forward. Um, I think it's very sad we live in a society where people chase after this experience. You know, they'll be in one relationship, they'll have the, th the thrill, the falling in love, and then when it starts to get real, they break it off and then they go, they chase another relationship, you know, chasing that high over and over again, which is, which is a very sad way to move through the world, of course. What follows the lovers on the path of growth is the chariot. Now the two lovers have been transformed into the two sphinx that are pulling the chariot. And the chariot represents commitment. It represents, represents committing to the hard work of the hard work of spirituality, the hard work of spiritual discipline, the hard work of a relationship. You might say, whereas the lovers represent falling in love, the chariot represents doing the, the day-by-day work of love, what is sometimes called the stirring the oatmeal kind of love in a, in a marriage, you know. Um, this, is, this card, of course, is reminiscent of the Bhagavad Gita. The whole Bhagavad Gita takes place in a war chariot. Um, so a very powerful card and a card that really confronts us with what is the depth of our commitment? What is the depth of our capacity for a commitment? How do we live out our commitments in our life? You know, what are we really committed to? You know, all these questions are presented by this card. Now, once we're committed to the path, we start getting the moral lessons. So there are five moral lessons that are the next stage. The first of these moral lessons is strength. Strength, you could also call this power. And what's striking about this card and striking about this image, I think the way I would say it is there's a lot of confusion in this society between power and control. A lot of people say they want power and what they're really after is more control. And there's a big difference because strength or power come out of our integrity. They come out of our, they come out of our core ultimately. 
the desire for control comes out of our woundedness. It comes out from ultimately from the most childish part of us. So really a lot of stepping into our power actually has to do with letting go of control. Um, and one of the things that's just fascinating about this card, you would, you know, stereotypically you think strength might be the, you know, the strong man who could wrestle the lion, who could break the spirit of the lion, you know, this sort of thing. But the tarot presents the exact opposite. Someone who is so gentle that they connect with the lion. And the lion is just licking her hands. It's so, it's obedient like a, like a house cat, you know? And that's really strength. The strength of establishing connection with our core power. The strength of, of establishing a relationship of deep allowing to our power. So that we're, we're inviting our power out. Through, through our kindness, through our gentleness, through our allowing, um, rather than trying to force anything. So there's, there's, there's a lot of Taoist wisdom that is captured in this card. The next moral lesson is the hermit. Here he is on a high mountaintop all by himself. The hermit is very much the truth of I need to, there are moments when I need to go be alone. I need to be by myself, unplug, disconnect, and just be with myself to find out what my own truth is. And there's, there's, an, absolute, there's an absolute necessity of that for any one of us to really be able to go to that interior place where we're, as it were, shutting out everyone else's voice and we're just feeling authentically into what our own truth is. That is one important truth of life. And I'll say also, you know, it's funny. This is actually a quote on the quote sheet. Niels Bohr once said, the opposite of a correct statement is a false statement. The opposite of a profound truth is another profound truth. So it's a profound truth that we need to have that hermit strength of being able to be by ourselves, And the opposite is also true. It is absolutely true that we need each other, that we need connection, that I need to go into the world and talk to people and connect with people and argue with people and get feedback from people and get pushback from people. And, and all of that that happens in human interactions, I need all that. That's also true. I need that just as much as I need the hermit experience, you know, so both are true. The next moral lesson is an odd one, the Wheel of Fortune. This is a, a, a very popular image in the Middle Ages. And so there's a lot going on on this card. So first of all, the, the golden figures in the corners, we have a man, an ox, a lion, and an eagle. And these are the symbols of the four evangelists in the Christian tradition. The man is Matthew, the lion is Mark, the ox is Luke, and the eagle is John. So here it just represents another symbol of wholeness. And the circle itself represents wholeness. So we have this spinning wheel... If you look at the letters of the wheel, we start at the T at the top and go around clockwise. We get T-A-R-O-T, tarot. We start at the T at the top and go around counterclockwise, T-O-R-A, we get Torah. So again, hidden wisdom or, or deep wisdom. Between the English letters, there are the Hebrew letters. The, this is the famous tetragrammaton, the unutterable name of God. You know, which sometimes is translated transliterated as Y H W H, the the unpronounceable name of God in the Hebrew Bible. And closer in to the center, beneath each letter, we have the alchemical symbols of the four elements: fire, water, air, and earth. So again, all these symbols of wholeness. Now, of course, the wheel is spinning. We have a snake on the side. Snake represents a principle of regeneration because, of course, the snake sheds its skin. So it represents this magical power of regeneration. 
we have Anubis hanging around on the bottom of the wheel, and then we have a sphinx, a magical sphinx, sitting on top, sitting calmly on top of the rotating wheel. And of course, a divine figure can do this. A divine figure can sit on top of a rotating wheel. Part of the mythology of the Wheel of Fortune in the Middle Ages was that the wheel is always turning. The king would try to get to the top, but as soon as they get to the top, the wheel would keep on turning and send them back down again. You know, and so anyone who was, you know, anyone who, you know, they'd be on their way up for a while, and as soon as they got to the top, they'd be on their way down, you know. You might say that the one of the teachings of the Wheel of Fortune, certainly part of it is just about negotiating the ups and downs of everyday life, but one of the deep teachings is the very center of the wheel. You could say that the center of the wheel represents the Buddhist idea of equanimity, that deep place of balance where we are totally at peace with the ups and downs of everyday life. So this is a very much a powerful image of equanimity right at the center of the wheel. The next moral lesson is justice. And there are two dynamics that I want to talk about here. Justice, we could also call this fairness or impartiality. The first dynamic is a very subtle one. I think there's a way that we all can be a bit self-serving in the way we look at our own, way we look at ourselves in terms of evaluating our, our, our moral achievements, you know, as opposed to the way we look at others, you know. Like maybe if I, you know, this is kind of extreme, but if I see somebody else fall short of some moral example, I may be judgmental and think, oh, well, that, that person's not a good person. But then if I fall short of that or a similar uh, moral precept, then I'm full of 10,000 excuses. You know, oh, well, I, I couldn't, it's understandable because I was dealing with X, Y, and Z, etc. And that, that's a little more of an obvious uh, example. But my experience, this plays out sometimes at extremely subtle letter levels, these very subtle levels at which, at which we give ourselves a little more benefit of the doubt. And so that's dynamic number one. And dynamic number two may seem like the opposite, although both dynamics can function at the same time. Dynamic number two has to do with the inner critic. You know, and and how can I say, we have this, this very strange message from Puritanism in this culture, and so many people buy into it implicitly, the idea that how good a person I am depends only on the kind of impact I have on others. So if I'm polite and generous to everyone around me, that makes me a good person, even if I'm absolutely rotten to myself. Like it, it's almost like this, how I treat myself doesn't count in, in, this, in this strange system, you know? And I think unfortunately there are a lot of people like this who are, who are nice, who are generous, probably a bit codependent, but, but very giving toward people around them but miserable to themselves, you know? Think about the things that your inner critic says to you. Would you ever say that to anyone else, you know? Or would you, or you, would you be comfortable with anyone on the outside saying to you the thing that your inner critic says to you, you know? So part of justice is this real this deep grounding, this deep ability to hold this kind of fairness so that I'm treating myself exactly the same as I'm treating anyone else. Not giving myself any extra benefit of the doubt, not, not indulging in these self-abusive narratives, but really being as fair to myself as I am to anyone else. This takes tremendous capacity and tremendous balance. So justice is actually something very powerful. I'll say at this point that the, sp- the, the whole process of growth has a nonlinear quality. We'll be committed, we'll be doing work, we'll be developing virtues. And then all of a sudden, it, it can happen all of a sudden that suddenly we're disoriented, we don't know where we are. 
And this is the experience of the hanged man. This place where the world is turned upside down. You know? And I think often what happens when we're doing spiritual growth, at some point, something in us has been holding on to some kind of assumption. And I haven't even realized that I was making this assumption, but this assumption was holding my life together. And something in me has gotten to the enough strength or enough enough healing that is able to let go of that assumption. And suddenly that assumption is gone and my world doesn't make sense anymore. And I don't even know why it doesn't make sense anymore. This is the hanged man. The hanged man is very much based on the mythology around Odin. It is said that Odin went to the world tree, the world ash tree, and hung himself as a sacrifice on the world ash tree. Odin sacrificed to Odin and hung there for nine days and nine nights. And as a result of this sacrifice, he was able to read the mystic runes on the tree, and that gave him the power to be king of the gods. So there's there's very much um, there's very much something powerful about entering this kind of you might say entering this disorientation with intention with purpose with this kind of knowing I am I am taking on this sacrifice in an intentional way. So the hanged man, of course, leads to death. And this is not physical death. This is the death of some way of being, some maybe some way that of being that we were holding on to since childhood, and now we're letting go of it, you know. And and even though it it's ultimately a healthy thing to let go of this dysfunctional way of being, it it's been part of who we are. And so letting go of it is going to involve a grief process. And so part of this is just this card is giving us permission to grieve. I also like the, the, the various responses to death portrayed here. Of course, the king went up to the death all-powerful. You know, I'm the king. The king is already horizontal. His crown has fallen off. The bishop is praying, praying like mad. The bishop is basically negotiating, trying to pray, you know, spare me because I'm a bishop. I'm holy. He's going to go down. I love the young lady there in white. She's just turning away like there's just this complete denial like I don't I don't even want to look at it, you know. And so with these three kind of dysfunctional approaches, not only to death, but to any major change, trying to outmaster it like the king, trying to go negotiate strategically like the bishop, or denial like the young woman. And what's astonishing is that the child, the little child kneeling child in blue, is holding a flower. And is offering a flower to death. In many ways a flower that that resonates with the flower on death's flag. So again this tremendous power of innocence. In approaching these challenging places in life. After death we get the fifth of the moral lessons. Temperance. Another word for this might be moderation. So we have the angel pouring water from a cup into a cup. The angel has one foot on land and one foot on water. And so this is, you might say, moderation in all things, including moderation. Um, It's a balancing, among other things, of consciousness and unconsciousness. This real recognition, this deep recognition that ego is not master in its own house. That ego has to, as it were, apprentice itself to consciousness, and there has to be this ongoing dialogue. Um, all of this is contained in the temperance card. So being being at peace, going through the death experience, and then having this partnership with our unconscious, this brings us to the core of the issue, which is the devil. I'll say in Buddhism, the second noble truth of Buddhism says the cause of suffering is attachment. This is a vivid image of what attachment looks like. This is a vivid image of why attachment causes suffering. Like it 
it, it's incredibly powerful here. Here we have the lovers, the former lovers who were then in the chariot, now they're chained to the throne of the devil. And the devil is about, it's very much about attachment. It's that attachment, you know, there often we get to a place in spiritual growth where we, we understand the dysfunctional process and we can say, I understand that doing blah, blah, blah is dysfunctional. We get it at a head level, but we still do it. We're still attached to it, you know? So it's that stage of, of facing the attachment that is much deeper than logic, impervious to logic, you know? I may get in my head exactly what I should be doing, but I'm still attached to the old way. And there's part of me that is still holding on to that old dysfunctional pattern with all its might. And it's funny, we hold on to the devil with all our might because we don't want to go to the tower. The tower, in some sense, the tower is about freedom, but it's a very particular kind of freedom. So the tower represents, there's this very high, narrow tower on the top of a hill was surmounted by a crown. A lightning bolt strikes the tower, shatters the tower, and people plummet out of the tower and are plummeting into darkness. So this is very much about a shattering experience, a shattering experience that happens when we let go of attachment, the, sh- the, the kind of wide open, disorienting, terrifying freedom that co- comes when we let go of that primal attachment that we've been holding on to our whole life. Um, this, you might say, represents all the, as it were, the therapeutic shatterings that happen in our growth process, in our, in, in spiritual unfolding. Um, a very powerful, very disorienting image. After the tower, eventually after that disorienting, it's as if we land. And where we land is the star. So it's still nighttime. It's still still a dark part of the tarot. But the star now, so notice first of all that the figure is naked. That is to say they're totally vulnerable. They're totally open. She's pouring water both onto water and to land, nourishing both consciousness and unconsciousness. We have a a phoenix in the tree in the background. The phoenix, of course, is the bird that burns to ashes and is rejuvenated from its ashes. And the star represents having that first sense of direction after, after the disorientation, after we've been in the belly of the beast, when we start to get our orientation again, the star is when I just have a sense, okay, I don't know what my whole path is going to be, but here's the direction I need to walk in. Here's the next step I need to do. So the star is very much about just having that sense of direction, having that sense of putting one foot in front of the other, moving in a certain direction. After the star, we get the moon. And we're still in the dark here, but the moon is when a new worldview is starting to come into view. We, we can't embody it fully. We don't understand it fully. You know, the way that moonlight shows us the landscape, but shows us the landscape in, in a different way than sunlight shows it to us, you know. We have a dog and a jackal and a crayfish representing the various fears about walking into this new worldview. Um, But there's a very clear path, a golden path. So at this point, it's very clear the, the direction that we should be walking, very clear the worldview that we are entering. It still feels kind of foreign and strange. The sun is when this new way of being starts to to feel like it's our own. We start to feel some ownership. So again, we have a a naked child on a horse, you know, representing this rebirth, this total innocence. There's sunflowers in the background, very wise looking sun. And the sun has straight rays and wavy rays representing this kind of integration, this integration of light and dark the integration of, you might say, masculine and feminine, the integration, all all the integrations of 
that are part of the healing process. And the one after the sun is a bit odd. It's particularly odd for modern people called judgment. Um, this is the very traditional Christian image of the last judgment. The, the angel blowing his, his horn and everyone rising from their graves and coming back to life. But what this really represents is when we've been through a healing process and I am in a more vital place myself, then I start to experience the world in a more vital place. That things that were dead in the world start to come alive again. And the world takes on a more living quality the more I can occupy my own vitality. So all that is contained in judgment. And the world just represents the full integration, the full ownership of that. So again, we have the, the four symbols of the evangelist in the four corners, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have the woman dancing in the center, again, naked, vulnerable, open to life. Um, this, is, this is the place where, at this point, I'm comfortable with the new vitality that I've integrated. I'm comfortable living in the world. I'm comfortable with the new experience of the world that I have. And there's a kind of innocence to it. And in many ways, the innocence that we arrive here with is, is the same as the innocence of the fool. And so in some sense, when we arrive at the world, we're ready to be the fool for the next cycle, you know. And so there's just this, it, it very much portrays the, the cyclical nature of spiritual growth or the cyclical nature of healing. I'll stop the sharing and at this point I'll share the quote sheet so in the room I'll ask I'll ask Corey to pass out the quote sheet it's funny sometimes it copies and sometimes it doesn't remember okay hold on a sec ah Okay, try this again. Okay, there's the quote sheet for the Zoomies. And so I put at the top of the quote three, three by Rumi. Could just make a whole Dharma talk on quotes on by Rumi, but the three that I put here are as you start to walk on the way, the way appears, you know, and so there's something there about our healing path, often in our healing path, going through this process, we're not following a recipe by any means. We're finding our own path, our own authenticity, and we only find it by living it. The second quote, if light is in your heart, you will find your way home. You know, and I think that is such a profound quote to keep in mind when we're in the most difficult parts of our path, you know, because there's, there's points in our pain where pain sends us the message, you know, you're going to be here forever. You're never going to escape from pain, you know. And that is part of the lie that pain tells us sometimes. But it's so important to have that faith of, you know, if the light is in my heart, if I continue to be truthful, if I continue to be loving, I will find my way home. And the final one, a little bit different, Pretend the universe is rigged in your favor. There's, there's something profound about this. Like just, that is just a profound discipline to embrace. You know, pretend the universe is rigged in your favor. I think there's so many Americans that pretend the universe is rigged against them. And because that's their belief, that's the life they create. You create a different life if you really do pretend that the universe is rigged in your favor. After Rumi, the first quote is from Zhuangzi, the Taoist sage. He's uh, 
Zhuangzi was a follower of Lao Tzu. He lived a couple hundred years later. In fact, the writings of Zhuangzi, they're, they're wonderful. They're actually really the only scriptures that make me laugh out loud. They're just so playful. But this passage from Zhuangzi says, If a person is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with their skiff, even though they are bad-tempered, they will not be very angry. But if they see someone in the other boat, they will scream and shout at, and curse at that person to steer clear. If you can empty your own boat crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you and no one will seek to harm you. Thus is the perfect individual. Their boat is empty. So there's something profound there about about avoiding conflict and about refusing to even be someone who could be in a position where conflict arises, you know. I very much like that in in reference to the card justice and about how we are with other people and and you know what what kind of fairness we we perceive. Picasso said it takes a very long time to become young. And really every time we go through the healing process there's a way that we get younger and younger. The Niels Bohr I quoted, but I'll quote it again. There are trivial truths and great truths. The opposite of a trivial truth is plainly false. The opposite of a great truth is also true. And really, the, the highest nature of spiritual truth is paradox. Henry Miller said, Why are we so full of restraint? Why do we not give in all directions? It is, is it a fear of losing ourselves? Until we do lose ourselves, there could be no hope of finding ourselves. Very emphatic quote from Henry Miller. From E. E. Cummings, I imagine that yes is the only living thing. In his own poetic way, that's very deep. I imagine that yes is the only living thing. William Feather, this is a quote I've used before. If we do not discipline ourselves, the world will do it for us. A very sobering quote. Dag Hammarskjöld, very wise diplomat, said, Life only demands from you the strength you possess. Only one feat is possible. Not to have run away. Like basically, basically all we can do is use all the strength that we have. That's what life, that's the choice life gives us. Marion Woodman, who we focused on last week, we just have one quote from her. We have the desire, the quickening of intuition about which, about what we must say or do, but it dies under the weight of habit. Without the intuitive symbolic language of the feminine soul, the seamless mirror of the mind is easily shattered by conceptuality and literalness. And so the very shallow kind of mental constructs we have if we're not in touch with the living, intuitive language of our soul. Ramdas said, The universe is made of experiences that are designed to burn out your attachments, your clinging, your plek to pleasure, to pain, to fear, to all of it. As long as there is a place where you're vulnerable, the universe will find a way to confront you with it. And I, I very much like that quote from Ram Das. I think I would rephrase it as your unconscious calls forth experiences that are designed to burn out your attachments. Like, in other words, our, our unconscious is headed toward growth. It understands what our wholeness looks like, and it's constantly causing us to reconstellate those situations that bring up our deepest attachments. So there's something very deep there. The Dalai Lama said, the, the period of greatest gain in knowledge and experience is the most difficult in one's life. Through a difficult period, you can learn, you can develop inner strength, determination, and courage to face the problems. Bernie Glassman said, we freeze up because we expect a certain result or because we want things to be perfect. I don't know much about Angelus uh, Angelus Arian, but I love these four rules of life. 
Four rules of life. One, show up. Two, pay attention to what has heart and meaning for you. Three, speak your truth without blame or judgment. Four, be open to outcome, not attached to outcome. If you can do all four of those, you're in great shape. (laughs) Those are four high ideals. Bruce Lee said, The successful warrior is the average man with laser-like focus. Jack Cornfield said, To open deeply, as genuine spiritual life requires, we need tremendous courage and strength, a kind of warrior spirit. Tara Brock says, A crisis has the power to shatter our illusions, to reveal that in this permanent world, There is no ground to stand on, nothing we can hold on to. So very much a Buddhist take on the truth of the tower. The poet Louis Erdig said, But every so often something shatters like ice, and we are in the river of our existence. We are aware. Tony Robbins said, I believe life is constantly testing us for our level of commitment, and life's greatest rewards are reserved for those who demonstrate a never-ending commitment to act until they achieve. This level of resolve can move mountains, but it must be constant and consistent. As simplistic as this may sound, it is the common denominator separating those who live their dreams from those who live in regret. There's something very deep there. Mirabai Star said, Mystics seem to have no shame about contradicting themselves right and left. They blithely proclaim that the cure for pain is pain itself and that the cry of longing is the sigh of merging. That's because the mystic reconciles contradictory prepositions such as harrowing sorrow and radical amazement and blesses us with an extended capacity to sit with ambiguity, to treasure vulnerability, and to celebrate paradox as the highest truth. Very powerful quote. Charles Eisenstein said, Why are we so desperate to escape the material world? Is it really so bleak? Or could it be rather that we have made it bleak, obscured its vibrant mystery with our ideological blinders, severed its infinite connection with our categories, suppress its spontaneous order with our pavement, reduce its infinite variety with our commodities, shattered its eternity with our timekeeping, and denied its abundance with our money systems. So there's a lot there. And I don't, I don't want to get too much into the politics of that, but it is a very interesting question to what extent do our, the conventions of our society prevent us from experiencing the miracle of life as it is. Steve Marioli said, The reason many people in our society are miserable, sick, and highly stressed is because of an unhealthy attachment to things they have no control over. Yasmin Mogadet said, Don't despair if your heart has been through a lot of trauma. Sometimes that's how beautiful hearts are remade. They're shattered first. John Izzo said, We may think of children as being innocent, but the experience of innocence is a way of being, a chosen state of mind, and one that can be experienced at any stage of life. And finally, David Matthew Brown says, innocence is the wonderment of life. 